We are continuing on in Daniel today, and uh, I did not put a picture of what I'm going to talk about right now up because I don't want to be playing favorites. But who here are who here has a dog? Who's a dog person? Okay, so we we got a whole bunch of people who are dog folks. And if you're cat folk, don't don't worry. Um, but this is not about you today. Um, how is how does your dog handle its slobber situation? Anyone have a really slobbery dog? Well, be thankful if you don't. I saw one walking down our street a few days ago, and the thing was just, I, I don't know if it was foaming at the mouth, I don't think it was, but it was pretty gross. And that actually got me thinking a little bit about, you know, why dogs do certain things. And there was a, a, a physiologist named Ivan Pavlov, and you probably recognize the last name, and in the 1890s, he noticed that his dogs, every time he would go in to feed them, would start, they would just get all slobbery and excited, and he actually started running some tests to test what happens when he adds a little bit of a trigger. And so one of the things that he did was every time he was about to feed them, he would do what? He would ring a little bell. And you've heard of the Pavlov's experiments, and eventually he would ring the bell even when there was no food there, and what would happen to the dog? It would do its kind of slobbery thing all over. And that's kind of, you know, just about everybody's heard the name of Pavlov. But what psychologists call that is a type of conditioning. It's classical conditioning. And learning about this actually helped explain why certain animal training works better than other techniques. And one of the things that they found out is that it's not just dogs that respond to this kind of classical conditioning. That for good and sometimes bad, humans also are particularly susceptible to conditioning behaviors. We can't always see it in ourselves at first. In fact, sometimes we think, oh, I, I don't do that. But how many times have you found yourself in the kitchen grazing because you just get into that kind of routine or that particular habit? It's usually far more easier to see this in other people or in larger groups of people. Like, why is that group of people behaving that way or acting in that particular way? Conditioning certain behavior to produce or create control. It's like a biological function of life. We're continuing on in the story of Daniel. And last week, Daniel successfully interpreted the dream of the king without hearing what the dream was beforehand. Daniel himself had a dream where the Lord revealed what the king's dream was and what the interpretation was. And ultimately, it was going to be that the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, there would be a succession of kingdoms that would lead all the way to God's eternal kingdom. And that eventually, even Babylon 
and Nebuchadnezzar, who styled himself a god, he would fall as well. Now Daniel was able to do this because God's had God's grace, he had been granted wisdom and understanding to interpret dreams in a particular way. One of the things that we focused on last week was that Daniel speaks to the difficulty that we each face in choosing to be allied to the Lord God Almighty. That when we choose to be allied to the Lord God, it is sometimes difficult to remain faithful as his children. Now we move into Daniel chapter 3, so if you want to follow along as I read different sections of that, feel free in your Bible or on your phone. And in chapter 3, some time has passed, and the uh, Babylonian king decides, as kings usually do, they think they're very smart, decides to raise a large statue to himself. And it's impossible to miss. In some ways, King Nebuchadnezzar actually begins what I would call a kind of Pavlov's conditioning program. But not as a simple experiment, but as a life or death loyalty test. A litmus test, if you will. Let me read the first seven verses of Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. That is about 90 feet tall and about 9 feet wide. So you can imagine how large this particular statue is. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So this was the who's who of Babylonian leadership. So, and you'll, you'll pick this up as we read further and further. There's a lot of repetition in this chapter. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. This is the king's orchestra. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. You can imagine or picture this particular scene. 
the pageantry, all the important people are there, and all the regular people are there as well, and they're put into this position where suddenly they have to make a choice. Not a simple choice, a choice where your life is on the line. Maybe you're thinking, I wonder what I would have done in that moment. And when we read this section, it actually reminds us of other things. Is there a particular section of the Bible that this reminds you of? Anyone else remember a particular calf incident? All the way back in Exodus 32. What happens? Moses goes up the mountain of God. He is communing with God, but he's gone a little long for the people. And they say, well, I guess that guy is nowhere to be seen. Let's go it our way. And they make this golden calf and they worship it. The number one temptation for God's people is idolatry. Idolatry in all of its forms, then and now. When we read this story today from Daniel 3, there's a certain concreteness to it. You know, sometimes when you put your faith and trust in the living God, it can still feel like, man, I sure would love something a little bit more tangible at times, something that I can put my hands on or hold or trust. And this is true for people back then as well. Most households had um, a little shrine of the various gods that they prayed to or followed. We do similar things, maybe not quite as overtly as that. And yet we know as the people of God that it's wrong to bow down to worship any of those particular images as substitutes for God. In the book of Exodus, we know that the Lord God has declared, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And that makes sense to us. And then, as we read through the rest of the Bible, and even as we reflect on our own lives, we realize it's a little bit harder not to fall into those traps. I once heard a speaker who said this about idolatry. Idolatry always works best when it is part of a mesmerizing rhythm. Repetition over and over again until something that you know is wrong, well, that doesn't sound so bad anymore. I mean, everyone's doing it. They just repeated it 20 times. It must be true. And you get a sense of this mesmerizing rhythm in the repetition of this chapter as well. The repeated uh, descriptions of all the people that were there and all of the particular instruments that were there. And at the sound of the music playing, the people then bow down to this image that's made. For those of you that are listening after the fact, I was just simulating a dog slobbering. <laughs> the king's orchestra was a life or death conditioning choice for the people. For us today, when the music plays, 
or the bell rings, when idols rise up in front of us, will we fall on our knees or stand on our feet? Idolatry is easy to identify when it is a tangible thing, a golden calf, a golden statue. It is a lot harder to identify in our world today. Those who believe in and follow Jesus today might say, well, I would stay standing. I would not bow down. And maybe that's true. Perhaps in the moment you would be given the strength to do that. And in fact, that's what Christ would hope our response would be. But the reality is that when we are in the midst of a crowd, where our anonymity is a little bit easier to hide, that it's easier sometimes to bow down with everyone else when the music starts. Sometimes it feels easier when that drum beat starts. And if it just keeps going, eventually you just start tapping your feet, just like Cindy or me. It's really easy. Now, this is obviously not an idolatrous action right here. But you can see, if we just repeat this, eventually, probably within five or ten minutes, just about all of you would be doing something like this. And then we do all sorts of things, and it's very easy to go down that path. It's easier to want to save ourselves rather than to stand out, to live, to fight another day by surrendering in the moment. What do they say about the tallest blade of grass? It's the first to get cut. So sometimes it's easier just to stay in the crowd, not growing or taking a stand. But standing out in the right ways is exactly what God expects and demands of us, no matter what may happen to us. I have wept with some of you when you've shared the struggles that you have had to endure, the people in your life that are supposed to be there for you that have let you down. And sometimes God expects us to remain Faithful. In fact, he always expects us to remain faithful even when it hurts. Even if other people don't understand what you're doing. Even if your friends don't get it or they make fun of you or ridicule you. Even if your own biological family scoffs and wants to do its own thing. God says, follow me. Standing in God's presence when everyone around you sits or doing the opposite is hard. People will look at you, people will talk, they might scoff or mock, especially people that knew you way back when. I know this is true in my life. When I say, yeah, I've been a pastor now for a while, and sometimes you get that, you? And maybe you have that too when you think back into your life as well. Like Daniel's friends, we live in Babylon, surrounded by gods and idols, but what king or kings do we bow down to? To what or whom do we swear our ultimate allegiance to? 
there's always big dramatic examples. In the early 40s, in the advancing horror that was World War II, and just as Hitler's death squads began systematically killing Jews in the Holocaust, there was an essay written by a Jewish author, and it was called The Gods of the Nations and God. And in it, the author wrote that every nation is inclined to make an idol of its inner spirit. And this is a glorification that actually turns into sinful worship. Now, you might be thinking, does that mean like patriotism or something like that? No, we're not necessarily talking about that. But the temptation of those is to turn what could be a good thing into a bad thing. Elevating something to the level of God. He writes, that is why every nation is bound to desire to get rid of us, that is the Jews. At the time, it is in the act of setting itself up as the absolute. And this guy prophetically wrote this just before another empire attempted to set up its own ideology as an idol for all to bow down to. So it's not just back in Daniel that this was going on. And it's not just in World War II that we most dramatically see this. This reality means that it is something that we too will all face in different ways and in different times. Perhaps not as dramatically as some of these stories, but often much more subtly. Some idols that we encounter, they creep up on us. Those temptations to keep on going in the way that seems right. Some of these we know well. I found a cartoon called The Rat Race, and maybe you can identify with these feelings. Happiness is just around the corner. Just work harder, earn more money, buy more things, keep going, and eventually you have just worn yourself out and you want to die from trying to follow the rat race. Sometimes these things can, be, can start out as good things and then turn into not so good things. Consumerism, busyism, meism, temptationisms, and maybe you have other ideas that are in your mind as well. What happens after the king sets up this idol and this decree. Let me read verses 8 through 12. It says, At this time some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Those are those three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. So the initial response is you have the litmus testes saying they're not doing it the way that you set up. These are, this is the Nebuchadnezzar's 
Truth Squad. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. Remember, this is pretty unusual for the king to give them a second chance. Usually one time you do it or you don't. And what happens? But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And in the man, and in the moment, you can imagine the Lord, if we had a personification of God saying, I'm up for the challenge. I'm up for this task. Let me in, coach. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Oof. That's a bold statement. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Their response is the highlight of this chapter. It's one that I, I'm not sure if, if I would have the particular courage in that moment. I don't know. And maybe you might or might not. It's hard to tell in the moment how we would have responded. In their case, they refused to bow down. They chose not to march along with the drumbeat that everyone else was following. Bow down, bow down, work, earn, buy, move, go, stop, wash, rinse, repeat, 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 into a nice drumbeat. Even though it's true that they would then face the fire. Let's read the rest of the chapter, and then we'll conclude. Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? Even if there weren't, they're going to say yes. But they do say this. They say, certainly, your majesty, 
The king said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. You can see this repetition. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. I've been camping a bunch of times. You just turn a fire on, and that smell is going to be in the beard for a long time. To me, that's one of the most amazing things, even more than the fire. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. And here's the most amazing thing. Therefore, I decree... Remember, Babylon is the most powerful empire in the age. That the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. My friends, God asks his children to trust him, especially when it isn't easy. Even when the drumbeats around us get loud. Even when the pressures to bow down are strong. Even as the cultural bells of idolatry ring out, follow me or follow me here. The Lord God reveals and declares in the Bible, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods besides me. That means nothing is elevated to the level of God. It's not God and anything, as I've said before. God's promise is to be with us, not necessarily to preserve us from suffering or pain or even death, as those three guys declared that even if God didn't save them, they would not serve those other gods. The promise is to be with us, even in the midst or the middle of the burning fire. We read these promises all throughout the Bible. I just have a couple of verses that I want to quickly read for us this morning. The first is from Exodus, Exodus 3.12. And God said, what? I will be with you. You you don't get clearer of a promise than that. In Isaiah 43, it says, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel 
your Savior. Psalm 23, the psalm that often is at many funerals and other types of events. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And perhaps the greatest promise, Jesus' final words before ascending back into heaven. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. No matter what is going on in your life, no matter what you see in this world, this promise still holds true. It is the very presence of the Lord that will enable you to stand up in the face of idolatry that presses in around you all the time. Now the response of these three guys is certainly courageous. They stepped out of the flow that everyone else was following in. But my friends, this is the kind of response that Jesus looks for when his voice calls out to each of his followers, follow me. Follow me. The only voice and name worthy of being followed all the way. Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you work in amazing and mysterious ways and that you also enable us to be able to follow you. You give us the strength, especially when we turn to you and ask you for it, to be able to follow you, to not give in to those pressure. Lord, you also know that it is very difficult. It is difficult for us in this day as well to live in the world and yet not be changed fully by the world. God, I pray now for this group of people that you have gathered together by the power of your Spirit today, that you would strengthen them for the week to come, that you would give them the courage and the fortitude to be able to continue to follow you all the days of their life. We ask this and we pray for this in your name, O Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Receive this charge as we go forth. God be your comfort and your strength. God be your hope and support. God be your light and your way. And may the blessing of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life, Remain with you now and forever. Go in peace, my friends. Amen. Have a great week. Hope to see you here next week.